Hi, I'm Richard Mack, your host of the MYB Cast. I'm opening the Traeger files again, this time with a very special guest, Dean Juhan. He's a Traeger practitioner, an author, and a longtime student of Dr. Milton Traeger. I'm excited to welcome Dean to the show. Dean, how are you? I'm good. So, Dean, I understand that you got first involved with Traeger when you met Milton Traeger at Esalen, while you were a member of the Esalen massage crew uh, back in 1974. Do you care to touch on that a little bit about how that came about? Uh, well, uh, Milton was invited down to Esalen uh, to spend a couple days, and I just saw this sprightly little elf traipsing around the dining room and the deck and he gave a demonstration while he was there one night and that demonstration just blew the lid off the top of my head and I knew I had seen some of the most significant body work I'd ever encountered in my life and that started me long story short on a 40-year journey of following this guy around from being one of his first students for 24 years until he died and continuing to develop his work and uh, creatively explore its possibilities. Wow, that's fantastic. And uh, you're the author of a book called Job's Body, which is probably the most important bodywork anatomy book that most body workers are using to this day. And another book that you're authored is Touched by the Goddess. And what is that about? Uh, that's a collection of essays I wrote over a several year period that touches on various social, physical, uh, psychological, spiritual aspects of bodywork and the awakening of consciousness through sensory awareness. And both those books are available through your website, Amazon. How could somebody go out and get a copy of these books? I think uh, probably Amazon is the most readily available. Great. So that's a little plug for you. Okay, without further ado, let me bring Madalena Ferrara into the fold. Uh, Madalena is a founder of Mind Your Body, and uh, she is a Traeger practitioner along with a yoga therapist. And she will be the uh, moderator for the panel uh, in September at this Traeger conference where you will participate. So let's begin. Hi, Dean. How are you doing today? Great. Great. It's so good to have you here with us. Oh, I'm very pleased. In our last podcast with Dr. Nancy Cotter, who's going to be one of your co-panelists at the upcoming conference, she noted that mainstream allopathic medical care, which is exceptional at focusing on the acute care of the patient, she said it really makes up a very small percentage of total care for people. I think she was quoting a report put out by the CDC called Healthy People 2020, and she said that that was about 10%. The real impactful um, contributor to people being able to manage their daily life and their well-being, according to this report, was lifestyle. I don't know if it's true, but I would speculate that that's because so much of what people are encountering are issues that are related to and originate within the mind. Back in the late 1970s, when you first encountered Dr. Traeger and you heard him say, it's all in the mind, that was a pretty revolutionary statement wasn't it? 
Yes, it was. And it was uh, a real paradigm shift in body work. You were a crew member at Esalen. Had you ever heard anything like that before? Well, when I trained and worked at Esalen, I was immersed in the Esalen smorgasbord of uh, gestalt therapy, psychological group therapies of various kinds, uh, all kinds of emotional work, cognitive people who came with their scientific workshops to present their views. Richard Feynman, the physicist, was among them. And a lot of workshops and private sessions that people were doing that had to do with their mind, with their psychology, with their lifestyle. And so it was clear to me from the very beginning that what I was up to as an Esalen massage therapist was not just slicking on the oil and massaging people, but being a contributing member to that overall psychological, cognitive, somatic unfoldment people were going through. So I know you have a really great story that I've heard you tell before about your first experience hearing him talk. What was the impact of that like to you, especially since you were already kind of dabbling in that aspect of things? How did his presence and his philosophy impact you? Well, I watched him do a demonstration one evening at Esalen, and uh, somewhere in the Esalen video archives is a copy of that demo, and I'm sitting there on the floor in the front row watching Milton fling this body around. I couldn't even figure out how he was managing to keep it on the table. And just watching unbelievable releases happen with this woman on the table. And I was just sitting there with tears streaming down my face, my t-shirt soaking wet. And I just said to myself, I've never seen anything like this. This is just off the charts amazing. So the guy hit me hard. And at first, I didn't think anybody would be able to learn it. It was just so quick and deft and idiosyncratic. Then I watched Betty Filler learn to do it. And I said, okay, the jig is up. I can't dodge that bullet anymore. So then he would come from time to time to Esalen to give short classes. I became one of his initial students and uh, stayed a student of his. We're training personally with him for 24 years. And, you know, with this business of it's all in the mind, uh, what Milton meant by that and what he said in conjunction with that is the mind is running the show the muscles are dumb he would say the muscles can only respond to stimulation from the central nervous system and duh (laughs) so if you're not reaching those mental precincts both conscious and unconscious no lasting change can really occur you're just pushing tissue around And the aspect of the mind that Milton was reaching uh, was both conscious and unconscious. On the conscious side, the rhythmic movements and tissue shimmers and range of motion swings that uh, the work consists of is constantly sending a barrage of sensory information to the mind that is giving the mind a clearer and clearer and finer and finer textured picture of the body. And most people are walking around in their upper cortex and are not paying attention to what's going on downstairs in any detail. This is how all these dysfunctional unconscious habits build themselves into our movement repertoires. So one of the primary purposes of the work is to elevate sensory awareness, because without sensory awareness, you can't get anywhere. If you can't feel it, You don't even know what it is. If you can't feel it, you can't change it. Then the unconscious aspect has to do with the fact that, and this is a little factoid from 
Roger Sperry, who was a Nobel Prize winner in uh, neurology. He said towards the end of his research career that he estimated that 90% of the central nervous system was involved in motor control one way or another. Our cognitive beliefs, our current emotional states, the monitoring action of the cerebellum, primary survival patterns that are laid down in the brainstem, and descending down into the spinal cord reflex uh, circuitry that finds its way out into the muscle cells and finally stimulates them into operation. All that assembly of central nervous system tissue, it contributes to motor control. Every motor nerve in the spinal cord can accept up to about 15,000 synaptic connections. And these synaptic connections coming down to every single motor unit are the assembly of all of that cognitive, emotional, sensory motor monitoring neural traffic that's going on in the brain and the spinal cord in the peripheral system. And 90% of the neurological uh, control mechanisms uh, of the control of my movements occurs on an unconscious level. The only thing I really have conscious control of is my intention. I intend to reach out and pick up the glass in front of me. I execute that gesture based on that intention, and I successfully get the glass and the water to my mouth. But how I did that, the hundreds of thousands of little synaptic squirts, the tens of millions of myosynactin interactions as the muscles lengthen and shorten to accomplish that gesture, all of that happens on an unconscious level. There are thousands of variables in any given millisecond operating. So I could not possibly track that consciously. I just say, Dean, reach out and pick up glass, and my body does it. And how my body does it is largely an unconscious process. This is why how I do it has to encounter all the previous ingrained habits that I've developed. So if I've had a shoulder injury, for instance, and I've had to guard that shoulder during its healing process, I've set up a pattern of tightness around that joint injury to protect it. The joint heals, that muscle pattern of protection persists as a habituated pattern. Therefore, when I reach out to pick up the glass, I've got to encounter, oh, be careful of that shoulder, don't reach too far, and so on. But that implies a certain level of consciousness being directed toward that too, the protective behavior. When that, for instance, injury had occurred and was healing, you see. Down the line, we've developed this way of approaching it, and that's just built into the system. Right. So my point being, the way that we approach the unconscious elements is through sensory awareness, raise our conscious awareness of what it is my arm is doing in space and why it's doing it in space. And then I can start to access my self-regulatory systems of reprogramming the unconscious mind to eliminate that old dysfunctional habit, build a new habit of easier, freer motion, and voila, I reach out and pick up the glass without any difficulty. And most of that is happening on the unconscious level. Yes. To focus all that, uh, I like to talk about what I call the 390%. And that is 90% of your body's tissue is devoted to movement. Your skeleton, your connective tissue, and all of the muscle mass of your body, autonomic as well as skeletal. 
that is most of what you are. That's about 90% of your tissue, barring extreme obesity. 90% of that motor control happens uh, in the unconscious mind at an unconscious level, and 90% of the central nervous system is in one way or another feeding in to that motor control process. Doesn't leave a lot of room for anything else. <laughs> well, you know, that leaves 10% left over for, oh, gee, I don't know, multiplication tables, uh, uh, repairing the cathedral in Paris, uh, writing books. Uh, but our main business, job one, is survival. And my entire nervous system is devoted to that job one, chakra one, stay alive at any cost. And that unconscious machinery is operating night and day. Right. And that is where we have to get our sensory messages into so that the conscious mind can recognize what's gone awry and can consciously create more adaptive uh, habits and behaviors. So in the work, they're working together, but the bulk of the mechanics are happening below the radar in that unconscious, natural, organic functioning. Yeah. I don't know how to split a percentage between my conscious awareness. And, anyway, uh, the movement is making my client more heightened sensory awareness of their body. And then we are able to pull up some of that unconscious motor control habituation material and start to change it. Does that dip into the realm of what science talks about today as neuroplasticity, the changeability of the brain's functioning? Absolutely. And I mean, some uh, neuroplasticity scientists are opining that you and I are rewiring our brains as we're chatting to each other right now. We're sprouting new synapses based on content of the conversation and my images of you and whatnot and all the rest of it. But anyway, bottom line to say is, yes, the nervous system is enormously plastic. And based on repetitive motion, my sensory motor system is constantly laying down reinforced synaptic tracks favoring one particular uh, synergistic group of muscle fibers that does this or that gesture for me. So the more often I repeat a particular gesture, the more ingrained it becomes in my neurology, and the more ingrained it becomes in my neurology, the more it becomes the operative underlying landscape of anything I'm trying to do from that point forward. By the way, speaking of this mind running the whole show, I am starting to run into articles and podcasts and YouTube things from Rolfers, from Alexander people, from cranial sacral people. They're all starting to talk about it's on the mind. Even the Rolfers are saying we have to abandon this model of I'm just there to unstick connective tissue. I am interfacing with a history. I'm interfacing with a mind. I'm interfacing with a belief system. I'm interfacing with an emotional history. And they're starting to get it. <laughs> right, right. One of my cell biologist friends is fond of saying, in the bodywork world, there's this theory, and there's that theory, and there's the other theory, and then there's the way the critter works. And all those modalities I've watched over the years start to merge in to the realization that was Milton's paradigm shift. That is, if you don't reach the mind, nothing lasting can happen to the tissue because the tissue can only respond 
to what the mind is directing it to do. It makes perfect sense. Doesn't it? This is a dumb moment rippling across the profession. <laughs> right. But we've come a long way from when Milton first said it, and it really wasn't commonly understood. Right. Well, and this plunged me into a lot of the reading and research I did for Job's Body and other articles and things I've been writing. That Yes, I had my anatomy background. I knew the layout of the muscles and connective tissue vector systems and one thing and another. But I realized if I didn't dip seriously into the neural precincts of the sensory motor system and the gamma motor system and the muscle spindles and the Golgi tendon organs and all of that unconscious motor apparatus, I had no hope of really having a concrete scientific understanding of what the hell Milt meant. But as I've continued my reading over the years and as I talk to other people who've been doing their neurology over the years, it's becoming clearer and clearer what the neural thresholds, what the neural pathways are between a state of consciousness in my mind that is reflected in my movements that are picked up by the movement quality of the client's tissues and from the movement of the client's tissues to the client's mind, there is a transfer of that feeling state. And it's not totally opaque how that happens. This is how sensory information enters, is processed, and is translated back out into motor response. And we're just intervening in that feedback loop and providing new messages of sensory awareness. Not only a finer textured picture of my body parts, but a feeling state that I'm transferring through the client's tissue to their mind of what is softer, what is freer, what is my conscious attention here and now? What is that open question mark of what is really authentically happening inside me and around me? All those issues come into play, and that's our playground with this trigger work. It's almost as if the planted seed at the beginning now is just being unraveled over all these years, because you don't really have to understand all this to get that response from the body. Milton couldn't care less how it happened. <laughs> he was always telling me, Dean, don't confuse him with all that science. Mm. You know, it's just a feeling. And I would say, yeah, but Milton, I'm interested in what that feeling is <laughs> and how, in fact, it's best transferred and what's going on in the mind as this therapy session is unfolding. It's a kind of a weird thing because it almost seems like there's two camps. Like you either understand it scientifically and you have the research to back you up or you do it and you create the result. Is it necessary to merge them together? That's what this conference is going to be about, really bringing in the neurology to the practitioners doing the work. Well, to Milton, the neurology of it and the hows and whys and wherefores, as I said, didn't really matter. He just knew it worked. But do we need to get that into it, Dean? My curiosity has spurred me over the years to try to be a bridge between that neurological scientific understanding of the nervous system and what Milton was talking about when he said it's just a feeling and it's all in the mind. I don't know how necessary that is, but I find it fascinating. Mm, right. Plus the fact that I find it an enormously persuasive tool to be able to pull people into an interest in the work. Milton always used to say, until you felt the work, you don't know the questions to ask. After you've felt the work, the questions don't matter. 
I think that's really true. But what I wonder is, in your process, because of your fascination with the science and the whys, how did that change your work? How did finding out and understanding with your mental comprehension, your cerebral cortex, how did that change your work as a practitioner? Oh, enormously. I felt that the deeper my understanding became about the neurology that I was interfacing with, the more quickly I could identify and pick up cues, the more quickly I could understand what the nature of a resistance is. Is this a temporary tick? Is this a block that's been there for 20 years? And this has all become so baked in to what's going through my mind as I'm working, I scarcely know how to even tease it apart anymore. It becomes fundamental for practitioners to develop themselves through the science, yes? Yes, I believe so. And also, having the language to understand that neuroscience and neuroplasticity and how the system works that we're interfacing with and how to talk about it is an enormously powerful, for lack of a better word, marketing tool. I mean, when you say it's just a feeling, they're going, oh yeah, California 60s, 70s, woo-woo, right. But if you can talk about how it works, why it works, the scientific basis of why and how it's working, people get pulled in. Their interest is piqued. They know that language. They say, oh, oh, this is real. Oh, okay, I'm about to learn something about a different paradigm of body work instead of, oh, yeah, all right, it's all in the mind. Thank you very much. So you have been there from the very beginning, and the time really seems to have come now from the standpoint of what science knows and what Milton knew of where the work's going, what we need to do, how do we fit into the new medicine model? Milton banged his head against the uh, prevailing medical model of his time for decades trying to interest doctors in his work. That's why he took the time to become a physician. He figured that would give him the cred and doctors would take notice. During his time, it really didn't penetrate much. They just watched him work and said, oh, great, thanks for the hour, Milt. See you later. I was there for lots of demos, just watching their blank faces, watching miracles happen in front of them. You know? But the paradigm shift was just too much for them in their allopathic model. That's starting to change in medicine. And what my co-panelist talked about with her 10% of allopathic healthcare is really the machinery of allopathy. Pharmaceuticals, surgeries, physical therapies of the classical kind, one thing or another. But they are starting to get the behavioral, mental, emotional, lifestyle aspects of people's physical health. And I think one of the bottom lines of that is, is the dawning recognition in the medical world of the disastrous physiological blood chemistry, brain chemistry effects of maintaining high levels of stress and anxiety. And we live in a culture that never lets the chipmunks rest. I mean, we're scrambling to pay the rent. We're scrambling to get down the freeway. And everybody is in a high state of stress. Many people are sleep-deprived and jacked up on caffeine. All this becomes a chemistry of adrenaline constantly circulating and coursing through my system that is constantly stimulating my organs, constantly stimulating my muscles, never letting my parasympathetic rest-restore mental rhythm come into real being, 
And that chemistry of stress and uh, adrenal and other hormones that go into that stress response, it's a stimulant. So when you're on that constant drip, it's like being on a coke run. And eventually things just start to exhaust and break down. Mm -hmm. That adrenaline system is designed when a threat appears to give me a spike of that stimulatory adrenaline fight or flight, get ready to confront or get the hell away. And that lasts for as long as the actual threat is confronting me. And then adrenaline immediately drops down to its uh, low level. When I'm in a constant state of stress, I'm never quite spiked and ready for an emergency. And I'm never quite resting. I'm just getting drip, 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 drip. So I'm in a constant state of physiological stimulation and in a constant state of exhausting my organs, depleting my energy supplies, um, and things go haywire. This is the source of a lot of inflammation. Inflammation is a response to that chemistry. And the medical world is starting to really get the underlying factor of the inflammation process with scores of pathologies. That inflammation is the flower bed in which the nasties find a foothold and happily grow. Yeah, I was working on a book by Joe Dispenza yesterday, just read a piece about um, that we're actually addicted to that chemistry. Adrenaline and its uh, sisters are a psychoactive drug and they are addictive. And so we get people who don't feel like they're functioning unless they're jacked up who don't feel like they're alive unless they're in a state of emergency. The good news is what we do and the state that we invoke for people and help them invoke for themselves can also be addicting. It's a beautiful yeah, I mean, feeling. <laughs> that's right. And this feeling state is a shift in the biochemistry of the bloodstream and the mind. And we can become addicted to that meditational, open, happy, observational what is lighter? What is freer? How can I get the next chore done with the maximum efficiency and least effort? All this can become part of my addiction. I mean, we're addicted to oxygen and water <laughs> for various reasons. <laughs> right. So this healing state is like oxygen and water to the mind. It feeds the mind with how to organize healthy responses in the body and maintain our own self-regulatory systems that keep me alive and effective and efficient in my daily life. Who are your clients? Who are you working with these days? Or what are you most excited about in your work? Oh, my goodness. Let's see. Um, I am currently getting referrals from a clinic in uh, Seattle uh, headed by a man named uh, Dr. Brennan who deals with deep pathology, both emotional and physiological and uh, biochemical and parasites and all the rest of it. And he's starting to send me some of his gnarly patients and starting to get the trigger is transforming these people's somatic lives. And in the process, transforming their whole emotional relationship, not only to their pathologies, but their capacities to heal. And I've been working with one of these women for over a year, and the transformations she's going through are just unbelievable to hear and watch. And her doctors are saying, I don't know what Dean's doing, but keep going there. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit more. Can you be a little bit more detailed without violating any kind of privilege? 
Well, one of the things that we talk about, this woman and I, is that the lethargy and the depression and the mental state that her pathologies have had her in for a very long period of time have just sapped her strength and have made her inactive. And in that inactivity and in her collection of muscle habits she's picked up over the years and whatnot, she is trapped in this cycle of, how shall I say, One of the things the Traeger work is doing with its shimmering and compressing and releasing and tractioning and manipulating the tissue is wringing the sponge of the connective tissue spider web in which all these little water balloons are entrapped. Cells and little compartments that hold fat cells, little compartments that hold metabolic waste and toxicity. And this is how the body compartmentalizes pathogens so they're not running mad through the system. When we manipulate the tissue the way we do, it's like wringing that connective tissue liquid sponge and releasing all that trapped toxicity out into the intercellular fluids where it's picked up by the lymph system and the venous return system and filtered and restored. So typically the day after I work on this woman, she has a terrible day. She's headachy. She's lethargic. She's, you know, it's like blah, kind of physical and mental space she's in. And then over the next two or three days, that lifts and she feels great, better than before the session, ready for more. The last couple sessions, she hasn't had that downtime. So my suspicion is we have wrung her sponge enough so that we have gotten rid of a lot of that toxic buildup in the sponge, and she's not encountering that dump into her system as dramatically. That is such an exciting description of how the work is working. Yeah. I mean, we are 80% water. We are an aquatic ecosystem. And the foundation of our physical and mental health is fluid circulation. And, you know, standing water breeds pestilence. The only difference between the Okefenokee Swamp and a clear babbling brook is the degree of movement through the water. Beautiful. And if we don't keep that water moving through our system, we get swampy. And then all kinds of parasites and pathogens can uh, sprout and grow in that swampy milieu. Standing water breeds pestilence. Brilliant. I have another client that I find very exciting and very interesting. He's a man in his uh, 70s who uh, has Parkinson's. And uh, he contacted me, and I've been working with him now for, oh my goodness, must be close to two years. Do I cure Parkinsonism? No. Do I give him a much different, lighter, freer, unrestricted feeling in his body during and after the sessions? Yes. And he goes back to his neurologist, and his neurologist says, I don't know why your disease is progressing so slowly. You should be much worse off by now. And during working with me, and we got him stimulated to engage in yoga, he's taking boxing classes, and this guy has an incurable degenerative disease. The quality of his life in the midst of all that is dramatically improved. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to ask you just one more question, and I'm so totally grateful for all of this time and the exciting conversation. The conference that we're hosting is open to the public. 
My hope is to attract professionals from several fields, medicine, physical therapy, yoga, yoga therapy, massage, somatic education, dance educators, even psychology and social work. Absolutely. Psychologists are starting to get it that the body might matter. (laughs) The body is the repository of the unconscious. (laughs) It's so fundamental. And at this point, it's like, like you say, duh, you know, like it's really crazy that we would ever think we could compartmentalize. Well, that's the system we inherited. Um, So I guess you're in the camp of agreeing that this conference could be a fit for anyone who works with people who want to experience greater freedom in their bodies, a healthier, happier state of life, um, or people who just want to experience that for themselves, even not the professionals, but just the public. And this glorious feeling state of lighter, attentive, showing up and paying attention, getting pleasure out of our occupations and out of our efforts. Uh, Yeah, I can't imagine anybody who would not benefit from this. And over the decades, all my classes that I teach for Traeger students, I've also invited anybody who wants to come in. I don't care if they're a Traeger member or part of the Traeger training track. I want to expose them to this work. I've had rolfers. I've had craniosacral people. I've had Alexander people. I've had physical therapists. I've had psychologists and psychiatrists of various stripes. And they all say, yes, this paradigm shift in approaching the mind and the body as a unified history and an entire intermeshed holistic system speaks to me and the tools that you have given me make my rolfing easier they make my craniosacral movements open up faster and more readily they help alexander people organize their clients postures they are getting clues of how to interface with the conscious and unconscious mind which deepens the work of all their modalities so we're talking about a very general panacea here This is one of the problems that the scientific model has with our work, that they, in their research, they want to get things narrowed down to single variables, a chain of simple cause and effect. The system doesn't work this way. The system is juggling thousands of variables at any given instant, and you just have to get in there and start mucking around, start to change the drift of that. And given these tools of how Traeger gets us into the tissue and into the mind and paddling around in there, Everybody's modality has seen a leap forward in their effectiveness and their understanding of what they're doing. I'm thrilled and excited. I know that we could talk for another hour, but this conference is going to be amazing, and your contribution is going to be extraordinary. I think we're going to have lots of fun. I think we are. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. My pleasure. This has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Awesome. I can't wait till September. Me too. MYB Cast is produced and engineered by Mitch Lieber, recorded at Beef Machine Studios. MYB Cast is sponsored by Mind Your Body, a somatic movement therapy, yoga therapy, and meditation clinic located in Cedar Grove, New Jersey. Mind Your Body specializes in the Traeger approach. For more information, contact us at mindyourbody.us or visit the Traeger website, TraegerApproach.us.